0: I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep. SLEEP.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in, and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: My goal isn't to not be afraid. My goal is to have a relationship with fear. So I I presume fear is gonna be part of this, this picture. So my goal is more to have a relationship to that fear so I can move with it, so I can push back on it, so I can learn from it. And so it doesn't have so much power over me, but I've not met any truly fearless people. It's more that I've met people who understand their fear and have made peace with it.
0: So says BJ Miller, a remarkable doctor who specializes in palliative medicine and end of life care which ironically means that he spends most of his time teaching people how to really live. When BJ was an undergrad at Princeton, he climbed an electrified train car and ended up as a triple amputee and long-term patient. Understanding the healthcare system from the inside out inspired him to go to medical school. And it also put him into a deep and reflective dance with mortality, fear, and what it means to lean into life. He has become a cultural Sherpa showing us all what this looks like and how to not pathologize everything. These days, he is the founder of Mental Health, which makes palliative care more accessible. He offers virtual consultations and guidance for individuals and families dealing with practical, emotional, and existential issues. He joins me today as we discuss his work on life, death, and how we go about handling the in-between. Our conversation covers the cultural numbness to death in the abstract and the concrete fear that arises when death becomes personal. We forget, BJ says, that suffering and dying are fundamental and intrinsic parts of life. When we allow ourselves to acknowledge the many small deaths that occur throughout our lives, whether it be the death of a relationship, of a career, or of a way of life, we can use these moments to practice losing and letting go, gaining clarity around what truly matters in the process. The goal, BJ tells us, is not to be unafraid of the end, but rather to cultivate a love of life that's so big it encompasses death as well. I'm thrilled to call BJ a dear friend, and I'm even more thrilled to bring this conversation to you as we contemplate the year that just was and the year to come. Okay, let's get to it. Well, it's wonderful to see you again, even even on computer screens. I, as you know, such a huge fan of your work and what you stand for in the culture and your good humor as you mm. <laughs> as you sort of lo- coach people to get closer to their death. And it's funny, I was just thinking about that Joseph Campbell quote, which I'm sure you're so familiar with, which is essentially the conquest of the fear of death is the recovery of life's joy. One can experience an unconditional affirmation of life only when one has accepted death, not as contrary to life, but as an aspect of life. Life in its becoming yes. is always shedding death and on the point of death. The conquest of fear yields the courage of life. I love mm-hmm. that quote. Yeah, that's and to good. to me, it's you. It's you. Mm-hmm. And it represents what's wrong so much in our culture, you know, our refusal to look at the fact that what begins must end and that this mm-hmm. isn't an up and to the right chart and we are part of a cycle of life. So...
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: you are that to me.
1: <laughs> oh man! Wow! <laughs> I'll try not to talk you out of that, Elise, because that is kind of really what I would aspire to. I mean, really, I, I think maybe all of us should, or I don't know, should aspire to. But I, anyway, I I do. That quote is gorgeous. It reminds me. There's there's a similar sentiment from Rilke. It basically says something similarly, a little more fla- florally. It's basically like the idea is to cultivate a, a love of life so big that it, it, that it includes death, you know, that, you know, rather than kind of loving death or getting kind of, I don't know that I love death, but I love life enough to to love death too, in a way. And I think that kind of gets at it. um, But also that quote is so good because it's a point that's made in there that doesn't get made enough. I think in my line of work and those of us who do hospice and palliative medicine and, and yourself too. I mean, a lot of us who are just, you know interested in the truth, interested in reality. Sometimes if we're not careful, the rhetoric sounds like, well, you gotta look at death because it's coming. Like you know, like kind of mm-hmm. our, our job is to push people's faces into this hard pile. No, it's not just just for its own, just because in the name of truth or something. I mean there's that could be plenty compelling, but the, the better news is if you do Deal with death somehow. If you find your way to wrap in your head around this part of reality, you must in the process come to a big old love or at least a fascination with life. Like that's a great upshot. It's not just look at this thing because it's true. Look at this thing because it will help you love your time. So that that needs to be stayed sung from the from the mountaintops again and again.
0: Yeah. And that the fear, the fear of. You know, no one gets out of here alive, but the fear of the mm-hmm. end means that you're just not really liberated to enjoy the rest of the movie. You know, you're mm-hmm. already mourning something. And, and it's interesting, I think, culturally, because not only do we mourn it, we're not – we're, we're death-obsessed in some ways in our culture. Mm-hmm. Like, we love watching people shoot each other and kill each other and on TV. We're very numb to death. But when it's at our doorstep or at the doorstep of someone we love – it's like the palpable fear. I mean, you think about COVID and the the hoarding reaction, which is understandable, but the fear response was this fear of losing what you have, not getting what you need, That's sort of grips us by the throat. And maybe that's just the animal instinct in all of us, but it feels like we have culturally become so many steps removed from the process that we don't wash our dead, we don't even sort of we we buy sanitized meat, right? shrink wrap meat. Like we avoid thinking about the cycle of life whenever possible. And
1: it's not good. No. no, we're living proof of that. I mean, we're all, we're all, we're living proof of that. And that anxiety is palpable and it's also contagious. And even if you're clicking along, all right, you're living in a world that's got fear pinging around it all over the place. It's unprocessed, unexamined, and everyone's being whipped around by their own feelings or the feelings of others nearby. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, I mean, I think we could probably take it on face value that we have a, we have a problem here and an opportunity with this big old existential crisis of COVID. Just like you said so beautifully, at least, I mean, just r- rattle off like a clear picture of how humans do this day in and day out. Yes, we fear death. Yes. But then we do this other thing. We cartoon, make it a cartoon through video games or through film to kind of that, that gives us a sense that somehow we're dealing with death. Cause look, there's blood all over the screen or, you know, but mm-hmm. it, we put it into a cartoon, which is just another way of distancing ourselves from it. And your point this aesthetically, I love this point too, like in the, these micro ways, whether it's shrink wrapped meat or whatever, these small aesthetic ways that we separate ourselves, put all these little abstract degrees of abstraction between ourselves and an object or a thing, To the point where any emotion or any meaning or any potency or any connection has been crowded out. And that's generally, that's a very subtle thing. I think think you're right to be stunned walking by a meat, like the meat counter in a grocery store should be enough to really arrest you. But it's not, we get inured. It's just Mm -hmm. this daily junk in the background that. But anyway, I'm going on and on. But your point is such a good one. Like then you'll get to the end of life where things are actually raw, where you actually have to look. And if you're unpracticed at that at dealing with that fear or surprise or that bigness, then you just get bowled over for it and you miss the and you miss the movie, like you say. And that happens a lot. I mean, maybe this is a refinement, or maybe I wonder if you agree. But like my goal isn't to not be afraid. My goal is to have a relationship with fear. So I I presume fear is going to be part of this this picture. So my goal is more to have a relationship to that fear so I can move with it, so I can push back on it, so I can learn from it. And so it doesn't have so much power over me. But I've not met any truly fearless people. It's more that I've met people who understand their fear and have made peace with it.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's an incredibly important point because- to have no fear would to be numbed out yeah. and to be detached. Mm-hmm. And I think what's more important and what things like this pandemic or life in general can teach us is about the fact that there are life is full of yes, a big death, but also many small right. deaths mm-hmm. throughout our mm-hmm. lives. Death of relationships, careers, marriages, friends, diagnoses, way of life, etc. It happens all the time and we we're not very graceful as it were, because we're not, we don't really talk about that. And so we don't have this culture of sort of getting up again and again and again and, and, and building some resilience, building that muscle mm-hmm. recognizing that, I mean, sometimes obviously life doesn't go on, but for the most of us, it, it will. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think fear, you know, I don't like the, I don't like feeling fearful because yeah. it, it puts me into a panic yeah. state, but it also, as you said, I don't want to die. It's not that I am blasé about Mm -hmm. death. I am, but I when I think about it, when I allow myself to contemplate it, I also get very clear about where my attachments Mm -hmm. are and what what I really need and what I don't. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's very clear that my attachments are to things, to people like my children Mm -hmm. and my husband and my family and my cats. Mm -hmm.
1: Don't judge me. I've got two of them. (laughs) (laughs)
0: but it, it also it like allows a little bit more of a you know I'm not attached to my stuff I but I might have thought that losing my things would be the worst thing ever but I don't know I think it allows a little bit of the nuance of what we really care about to come in and yes you walk people through that all the
2: time yeah
1: yes yes and yes and so do you in this way I mean you know that this is a daily practice for many of us if we chose to see I mean, your point about little deaths all over the place is really, really key in, in part because first of all, I just think it's true and it's, it's a, it's a nice way to really kind of be true to what's happening. But it also, I think a lot of uh, you know people will say, well, death is this foreign exotic thing that we can't know. And that on some level, maybe, right. There's not, there's also, I've been around a zillion deaths. There's all sorts of shit. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't say what's coming afterward. I, you know, I, but I it, there is seem to be just in terms of our human behavior around it. We do have zillions of practice moments in a daily way around loss, like you're describing, deaths of roles, deaths of ideas, deaths of relationships, you know, et cetera. So those are all, we have these zillions of practice runs. So this thing that is exotic and scary and foreign, it turns out probably isn't so scary, isn't so foreign, and definitely isn't that exotic. I mean, it's about as normal as it comes. So anyway, we're we're amidst it all the time. So kind of what you're pointing to is we don't have to be in this rarefied hospital with a crazy ass diagnosis. You can just open your eyes to your daily life and this stuff's going on all the time. So yeah. yeah. So that's, yes. Amen, sister. And yes, it is true. This is what I do for a living too. Yes.
0: Yeah. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother in law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really, I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close, and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame. Whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20 plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's Framebridge. I want to talk a little bit more about palliative care but first what you you when you were talking about sort of what happens next and I have my own theories I know we mm-hmm. you, that you have theories mm-hmm. that that are what they are or you just sort of stay open mm-hmm. to whatever it may be but what's also so interesting about death and what we observe in nature is that that's what feeds new life right so and we always want to take ourselves out of the cycle but you know, you look at the 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 composting of nature, the death, the decomposition mm-hmm. that leads to the next season. Mm-hmm. And we think about, you know, it's been my experience having, you know, gone through the, I think you could call it tragic loss of my brother-in-law when he was only 39, but he is still very present. And you know, I will argue to the death. No, but I will argue with anyone. Not only, who knows whether he is, i I believe he's energetically very present with me and I feel him and I talk to him mm-hmm. and it helps me. It certainly hasn't made me, it hasn't obviated my grief. I very much would love to go for a walk with him in 20 minutes and talk to him on the phone. But I, he is very alive to me mm-hmm. because he lives on in memories and conversations. We're talking about him now. I think about what he would do. So it's so it's so interesting too how we get fixated on the permanence of matter. Like if the person doesn't exist in exactly the same way, or the mm-hmm. thing doesn't mm-hmm. exist, then it no longer has any mm-hmm. bearing on our reality. Mm-hmm. But we know that that's not
1: true. Uh, right? Another stunningly obviously true you know not true thing we can just like your yeah our daily lives have ample proof of this right for whatever else death may be and whatever and you know the part that i i can't comment on is my consciousness per se and uh, this sort of a sense of i me bj you know i don't know what what happens to that but but there are plenty of things we do know that are right under our noses all the time just like you described with your brother-in-law amen I mean, so all we can really say about death is that it's it's a, it's a change, that much we know, but there's ample evidence that all sorts of things continue on. And back to your point about, I think that one of these key, key takeaways these days, whatever your issue is, is coming around to this idea that we, yes, there's so much we can learn from nature, like you're describing, this life and death thing is just all in a swirl all the time, just look out your window. But the next step is seeing that we are that, we are nature. Why I don't know. it's, it's mm-hmm. a fascinating, I suppose we could trace it back to probably Judeo-Christian roots. But this idea that we somehow held ourselves out as distinct from nature. Ooh, ooh, that caused, mm. ooh, that's a lot of trouble. That there's been some yeah. fallout from that. And it does feel like death is one of these things that reacquaints us with this nature with nature. Um yeah. And that we can get started on right away. In fact, we really probably should. I think there's ample proof of yes. that. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Desperately. I think it's dancing in the flames with uh Marion Whitman and Eleanor Dixon or the Crone, which I don't know if you've read that book by Barbara Walker. Mm-hmm. It's like a 1985 classic. It's so, you'd love mm-hmm. it. It's about sort of the 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 pulling the crone, this this elderly woman out, sort of turning her into a witch, kicking her out mm-hmm. and as, as part of it our lack of veneration for initiation, <laughs> rites, rituals, and even, you know, dying, I think is, is once we're not procreative, we're of mm-hmm. little value. But Marion Women and Eleanor Dixon, they equate it to the plague and being the first moment when death became this terrible specter that could not be controlled. I and mean, obviously, it has roots all over the place. It's like Hobbes, it's Freud, it's mm-hmm. this idea of like, our minds we can suppress the body, we can suppress nature or natural urges through our minds, which is where so many of us are stuck, disembodied, mm-hmm. and not really having a full experience. And it is Judeo-Christian. It's just like, oh, if we can get over all of these earthly temptations and delights, we'll really live, BJ. Right. Like We're going to live in heaven. Right. So odd. <laughs> Yet yeah, then we also are like, our death, the death might be the narrow gate to heaven, and we still we have no interest um in going right. through it, so right.
1: sorry, I just love that last point. Like <laughs> even if we stick with that tradition, that way of thinking, it still doesn't add up. I mean, you still should be looking at your death either way. So sorry, yes, right.
0: Yeah, you know, huge fan of your sort of practical guide to to death, because I think that that's the greatest act of love Mm. is being really clear, thinking about this, embracing it in some ways, not again, doesn't mean that you've overcome your fear of dying. And I think everyone needs to do this, whether you're 20, 30, 75, 95. But to keep a Google Doc, keep a working document of what you want, Mm. where your stuff is, passwords, it sounds so strange. And but having gone through this process, it is so loving and it, hopefully you won't need it for 50 years. But to actually, the, the one of the worst things in the aftermath is you're dealing with grief and then you're also sort of like, how do I honor this person? I, they don't, I don't know what they want mm-hmm. and and how they want to be celebrated, what music they want to hear. And it's a really, actually, I've done it now and it's a really beautiful practice to actually think about these things. And so I highly recommend that. And I, re- I love your book. Thank you. And as someone who's been there for so many people, both in palliative care, which I know we should talk about sort of as not necessarily the end, but an important, a very important resource for people who are w- dealing with long-term illness, whether it's terminal or not. Mm-hmm. But what do you see? Like, what do you, what are the upsides like what is the beauty of of being there because I know it's an incredibly fulfilling career. So talk us through what you observe.
1: Well, you know much of the upshot for me has been reifying so much of what you're describing at least and so much of what we're talking about here is and and I things that I could have come to conceptually as a good undergraduate, field of study or something you know you can you can you can look at death as an idea and its and its impact in the world of as this construct that we bounce off of and that's all fascinating it's all really true i mean there's plenty to play with you know intellectually but to then take this these thoughts and to wash them through real life embodied by real life. I mean, a sort of embodied in real time experience to feel the feelings that go with all this, to know that something is actually about to really end, not as a thought, but actually in, in, in its matter, you know, as, as porous as we described earlier as, as matter being, it is still significant. You know, there's still something very significant about death, just as there's significant my just a quick tangent. I mean, I, mentioning we were talking about other attachments earlier and other losses, like I find I still get a, a lot of I glean, a lot of lesson out of the fact that I have cried just as much over lost animals and lost objects mm-hmm. that I've loved, lost limbs, lost siblings. There is something. Those are not equal. It's a mistake to try to compare and contrast losses, I believe, but it is true that I just, those feelings, they're not so distinct one from the other. And it's amazing how humans, how we get attached to things. It's a gorgeous enterprise. We just have to remember that the other end of it, that there's going to be a moment where we are asked to detach in some way. That's different from unattached. It's different from forget. That's different from leave behind. But one thing I'll circle back to your question, but one of the things that doing this work does for you watch, if you're being careful, you get much better at a very precious piece of this process, which is detachment, which is a letting go, which is a way of dropping your your investment in a thing. Like It's not going to pay you more dividends. It's not got some future payout involved with it. It is what it is, and it's going away per se. And learning to let go, learning to drop into rhythm with people, learning to see what to what I get to hold on to and what I have to let go of, that discernment. That's Those are beautiful. That's a lot I've gleaned from this work. So it's not been so hard for me and many humans, I suppose, to attach to things, to love something or someone in a way. But the other part of that love of sort of watching them go, letting them go and not completely... L- losing sight of life or myself. That's a real practice. That's one that I don't think a lot of us are very good at because we move around at yeah. this pace, but that's one aspect of this work, but that's been very valuable for me. And it's very much a, a work in progress. I need to learn how to wind up into life. And I also need to learn how to wind out of it up and through. Like there's a There's a rhythm to all this and I get a lot of practice at that, working with people who are facing these moments themselves and I get to face them with them. So that's anyway, yeah. I'll shut up for a second. There's much more to say about this job, but that's it, that's one piece.
0: No, I mean, and you're what you're taught, that winding up and winding down, I mean, so much of that is we, and I don't know where this comes from, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but this aversion to change and this idea that somehow we can freeze this moment or things won't evolve or we won't become different people over time. We're very scared of that. And you, I guess, you know, you're a living symbol of getting on an electrocuted train car and having your entire, your body, everything completely be different. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you are more joyful on this side I know you went through an inc- it was very difficult obviously but how do you think about that like that complete change to your body and would you go back would you tell that younger self don't get on that train car
1: Yeah probably would I mean you know there are other, <laughs> there are other, <laughs> there are other ways to learn these lessons <laughs> that are a little less expensive but but your point is still a good one I mean I have so I I only say that in part to not fetishize, I don't want to. You know, I've I've worked in places and around people where I found there was a sort of ghoulish habit of comparing sufferings and who's who's got it worse, who's got it harder. I remember when I was in in the rehab setting, like what are you in for? Kind of talk, like what you know, what happened to you? Like the more outrageous the story, the cooler you were on some level. I mean, that's sort of an aside, but but I also but why to mention that at all is because no, I don't think. I don't think you need to have these very dramatic stories to learn these very simple lessons. I happen to have had some drama that has sort of driven the point (laughs) home, but, but these are accessible. I don't want anyone to think that you have to have cataclysm befall you in order to find find a, kind of get through to these kinds of points that we're talking about today. But for me, it was, I did need it. I did need a big old, I call it the cosmic spanking. I didn't need something to come along and just smack me really hard and make it clear that I wasn't so in charge. And also it wasn't just, you don't have control kid. It was actually, no, it was more of like a refinement. Look where you do have control. Look where you do have a say Mm -hmm. Get really granular. And it was also a process of, you know, as a spoiled kid, of course, I thought there were things I wanted to the point where I want them so bad, I thought I needed them. And you made, Mm. you used some language earlier in our conversation today that made me want to circle onto this point, too. You're, you're so, you're fertile and rich, at least there's so much come, there's so much to ping off of with you. Did I just call you fertile. Sorry, I don't, That sounds weird. I mean, I'm like I'm so into it. Mean, I'm putting that on my tombstone. I'm sorry, I just mean. But there's I'm this, a
0: fertilizer. Yeah, you.
1: Yes, you are. And actually, I, 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 I'm with you. I, I think of of this work that we do as actually a lot like fertilizer. There is something really, really important. I think we get. We can't help but start feeling so strongly about something that we want that it becomes a need when it's not really a need. And I've watched that myself. Stripped down to the studs, and I got to see. It wasn't only this like taskmaster lesson. Like like I was saying before, like you better now you know you don't have any control. It was more like, no 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 man, look now look 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 at all that you can lose and still be you, and still exist. Yeah, like that was a really juicy, great stuff. That was hard fought and subtle and came with a lot of pain, but that was a big big takeaway. And that's that for me. And that's when I get to play out with others now is these sort of big existential crises come along, befall a life. They're inevitable. And when they do, they have a habit of, of, uh, you know, shaking you down and loosening up the barnacles of you, these old habits, these old stories. And if you're, if you can roll with it, you get to shed a lot of poundage of stuff you're dragging along. If, if you, you know it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It can be too much. But if you, if you can hang in there, and I watch it happen with people again and again, is they get to see what they actually just, what, what their need versus their wants, themselves versus yes. others, those control things. So these are invaluable lines of sight. And I get to see them all the time. And I got, yes. I got them early in life.
2: Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills. So you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com sample-policy. Spotpet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC.
0: It's interesting, you know, living in California with fires, obviously, So we, you know, many years ago, now we did a dry run evacuation. We sent our kids with their nanny Mm. to her house in Riverside. And then we packed some stuff and sat in the house for a few days. And this is my husband and I. And we didn't pack that much stuff. And then I was like, we have all this time. Should I be packing more? And I was like, no. Like, what am I going to do with my wedding dress? Like, (laughs) I don't need any of this stuff. And then a few years after that, we actually did evacuate the fire. We watched from the hotel room. You know, we had our kids and our cats and some papers and we watched the fire and it was, you know, our house was in the lower quadrant of where they were, you know, filming the fire. And we were like, our house is gone. which just kind of sad because we live in a historic landmark architectural house that's very special. But that was the only thing that was, that we were sad about. In a way, it was like, I guess we'll, it'll just burn and we will lose all of our stuff. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> like it was so <laughs> liberating. In a way, it was almost like, let it go. I can't. I mean, when you talk about, you know, carrying around pounds of stuff, we get so fixed. You know, it's like, I don't know why I have all this these things from my childhood. <laughs> my mom doesn't know why either. She's very <laughs> practical and likes to throw stuff <laughs> away. <laughs> but why? <laughs> it's so wi- It's wild what we... Cling to, mm-hmm. and I guess as you're working with people, part of that is as weeding out some of these attachments. And mm-hmm. then, as you say, like who's in the hotel room with you? It's not fun to be in a hotel room with cats, BJ. I will tell you
1: that. <laughs> I've been there, sister. We're <laughs> finding actually. hotels yeah. that take cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, are so you guys are there still living of out of a hotel now? This is active now? No, oh, this oh, is oh. a few years ago. Oh, Our house okay. didn't burn down. Okay, okay. Came very close,
0: mm-hmm. but. No, we're not in okay, a hotel. Okay. But it was interest. It was – I won't say it was disappointing because that would have been terrible. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Like, ready. Take it all except for
1: mm-hmm.
0: my, my kids and husband and animals. Yeah. So it can happen. And you must watch it happen. Like, is it a it, perceptible shift in people when they're really at the end?
1: Yeah. Well – Yes. Well, let me well let me make sure I get your question. So, I mean, one is is it a perceptible shift when people begin this sort of letting go and sort of head into this sort of existential crisis, or is it a perceptible shift when someone starts dying specifically?
0: When they start, I mean, not even the dying, but the emotional, because the dying is sort of the physical reality, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the emotional, like the the, and I don't want to say lack of fear, because I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's as we say a, a constant pulse point, but that. The letting go, the starting to detach. Mm-hmm. And you're with people, you're with both both sides, mm-hmm. right? The people who are devastated but will continue to breathe. And then the people who won't. Yeah. So what does that feel like?
1: Yeah. It feels like in some ways, and I can't tell if I'm inured to it or it's just the this what this job or, or if it's actually achieved what word what we, what it is we're talking about in a way, which is like daily life is filled with this stuff. Daily life is if you're paying attention, whether it's your own life or your neighbors or a bird on the tree that you're looking at, whatever it is, there's ample evidence of what we're talking about all the time. There's ample evidence of just how precious, therefore how precious everything is all the time and how it could go at any time. So in some ways, like... There's a sort of a mundane thing that happens around the end of life too, because if you start seeing these patterns, it looks a lot like daily life once your eyes are pried open. So in some ways it can be these very stark moments with families. And those are often the time of diagnosis or the time of like hard news, like some, mm-hmm. like a cancer has just spread or heart disease is just worse. And some, some medical declaration moment that means your prognosis has just shifted. And it has significance for your future. So these are these big moments where people tend to where there can be some drama and cataclysm and can take a real moment to grieve the loss, to process that news and to realize that you're still here while you are and all that stuff. That takes time, that takes but sometimes or often the changes are much subtler I and mean, I think we let these lessons into our consciousness as we can when we can handle them. Like we we're saying, we're seeped, we're surrounded by them. So being with patients and families is, in, over the time, it's like watching a sort of, yes, it's watching a cascade of losses by some description, but it's also watching a, a gradual process of waking up or something like that, of tuning in in a different way. And so you've got these lines on the graph going in different directions and you get to feel both. But I can just say that to your question, it, it generally feels much more gradual than sort of these sort of big dr- dramatic moments. Like even my own with that injury in sophomore year of college, like the moment itself, the injury itself was this huge thunderbolt. But the <laughs> the, the rehab, the lessons, I mean, I'm are talking about years of gradual, like a slugfest. And so it is with patients and family. These are gradual moments. Sometimes there's this sort of real awakening in a a moment, but that tends to get lost as real life kind of daily life comes back in and distracts people. So it's gradual. It's nonlinear. People will grasp these amazing, having these beautiful insights about themselves in the world, and they can feel really at peace. And then seconds later, it's gone that perspective, that sense of proportionality just Mm. is elusive. And we have, old muscle memories yanking us around and the fears of others yanking us around. So you watch people move in and out of this sweet spot of perspective and love and everything is okay, but they don't get to stay there. None of us it seems gets to stay there for very long before being yanked off that circle. It just, so anyway, it's gradual. And, and in some ways in these ways, probably a lot like, like I say, there's, so there's something mundane about all that too. It's happening all the time.
0: It's interesting you say that because I also wonder if that's that revelation of the 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 fact that it is mundane mm-hmm. it is like any other. In a way we as much as we don't want to see it we're used to mm-hmm. this. It's like our bodies aren't are doing this. We are this is who we yes. are and so in a way po- probably some of it must feel like oh it's it just feels like this. Yes. Oh.
1: <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not like I think the lesson, the, the, yes, I don't think the lesson is the takeaway is not like ah, death's just as boring as life is. So we're like, no, no, like, no, no, no. Open your eyes wider. Death is just as exciting, or life is just as exciting as as death is. Like that, this is you know, yeah. I, it's, there's something like there's almost like a sin to being bored in this world. If you're bored, you're you're not looking. There's just you know what right. I mean. I. I and I say that with a little bit of a wink because I get bored. I don't mean to be so critical, but but there is something about that. And if you're not, if you're bored, you're not paying attention or something like that.
0: So let's talk a little bit about mental health and, and palliative care in general, because I know like not not it's not your intention to necessarily disrupt it but that we have Mm -hmm. this culture that has again going back to like sanitized meat that Mm sanitize the experience of death right people are terrified of hospice they don't know what palliative care is they don't know what's available Mm -hmm. and then they sort of are in a death match with death rather than allowing a more graceful generous spacious Mm -hmm loving, I mean, I would say definitely warmer experience, Mm -hmm. right? So can you talk a little bit about this next chapter?
1: So first of all, it's just like you've said, I mean, for your listeners, you know, palliative care and hospice get conflated all the time. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. But just the bottom line is palliative care is, is, is really is very simply the sort of interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life or, you know, and the treatment of suffering. That's the novel, mm. one of the novel distinctions around palliative care versus the rest of healthcare is we healthcare treats diseases, palliative care treats suffering, which is just sort of human subjective experience, mm. you know. So we we roll around with the subjective world, whereas the rest of medicine is always trying to objectify things. In palliative medicine, we're looking at the individual's dance, just the details of their experience. So our whole goal is to help someone achieve quality of life in their terms. And to suffer less, that's that's all palliative care is about. And has the, there's no mention of death. The hospice is a part of palliative care. It's a subset of palliative care that is reserved for the final months of life, generally speaking. So hospice is, yes, is a type of palliative care that is needed out in the final, say, year of life. Whereas palliative care, I have patients I've been seeing in palliative care for 12, 13 years. Some folks who are even re- in remission, mm-hmm. death is nowhere nearby, but they're suffering or they're trying to figure out their place in the world, or they're trying to find their way to loving reality, which is basically my goal in life. So anyway, that's palliative Mm -hmm. care versus hospice. Very important distinction, because like you're saying, you don't need to wait. If you're suffering, if you're struggling, you got a hard diagnosis, you're living with some serious illness or your family member is, or someone you love is get palliative care involved. So now that kind of leads into metal. So palliative care is a wonderful thing. It's growing, but it's not growing fast enough. Most Big cities will have access to palliative care programs. large health systems generally have palliative care programs or regional cancer centers, big time medical centers, but it's lacking out. The field hasn't grown big enough. You won't find out oftentimes in rural settings, there are certain geographies, the Southeast and upper Midwest, uh, there's not a ton of palliative care. A hospice is much more accessible, but like we were saying earlier, that's really for the final months to year of life. So, palliative care being important, wonderful, and effective, but the proud part is it's not very accessible. So, Sonia, my business partner, and I decided, with telehealth on the rise and, and a pandemic in the in the air, we started mental health as a way to make it more accessible. So, you can reach out to us without a doctor's referral. you you can be the patient, you can be a caregiver, you can be a family member. Because we pulled it out of the healthcare system, out of the medical system, we don't have the same hoops to jump through. Technically, we're a social service. So I'm a physician, but in my new role at mental health, I'm not wielding my prescription pad. I'm not becoming your doctor. Rather, I'm coaching you how to use your doctor more effectively, for example. Mm. So anyway, there's some wonky details about our structure. We could talk about, but that's, but that's mental health. It's online palliative care, counseling, and coaching. When we talk about the full gamut, we talk about all sorts of stuff. Clients reach out to us. At least it's been fascinating. Some folks have been reaching out just because they're going through big transitions in their life. And they wisely see that palliative care has something to offer them. Like folks who are uh, thinking about coming out of a marriage or changing their careers or looking for meaning in their lives, or those folks are also reaching out to us, which has been great. Friggin' love it. I mean, it's allowed us to totally depathologize illness, difficulty, disability, death, even. Because as we've been talking, those are normal parts of a normal life. And we're just treating them as, as such.
0: High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the 7-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. This is very exciting because I, you know, one of the things that like your work in general lights me on fire, but this has been something that I've been thinking about, not compulsively, but just this idea of how we're asked to sort of resurrect ourselves again and again throughout life Mm -hmm. and there's no structure or support. And typically we go through these experiences, which can be, as you mentioned, the loss of a pet or a natural disaster, diagnosis, Mm -hmm. death, losing your job Mm -hmm. getting divorced whatever it is and we're doing it not only typically alone and not timed with anyone else but these things are scary to people Mm -hmm. you know they assume they feel like there's something maybe contagious about it or contagious about the grief there's so much shame around so many of these things and there's they're amazing resources they're just scattered and people don't it's and hard too when you're in grief or in this moment of transition to know where to look. Mm-hmm. It's not you're not at your finest. That's why I love mm-hmm. too this idea of proactively preparing for these things. Right on.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right on. I mean, yes, there's a planning is important and that's what that whole book is about, the beginner's guide to the end is sort of getting yourself prepared, like we're talking and planning is important and just like we know in life, it's also important to realize like the plans only get you so far and you got to learn how to roll with uncertainty. You have to learn how to move When the world underneath your feet seems to be unstable, you know, and that's ultimately really so much what we end up talking about with folks at mental health or in palliative care in general, you end up describing the experience of uncertainty or not knowing yourself that's, those are the details of dealing with illness and death. Like that's, and those are much more relatable. I think a lot of us feel those often, oftentimes, yeah. you know, and having a place to reach out to, to someone who, cause, cause you can feel so alone. It can feel like such a sad experience and such a lonely experience, but it turns out these are variations on themes that all of us experience. And if you go to, you know, it's fun to just sort of set a safe place to talk about these things and wade in and look in and lean into your life and it's beautiful i love i love watching how people show up for these we have these hour-long sessions and It's just so fun watching how people show up and how vulnerable people are willing to be and all the strength one of the things another cool thing on the long list of lessons i get to see play out you know is this false divide between vulnerability and strength is though vulnerability is weakness mm. it's completely the opposite i mean if you're if you can get vulnerable you are you are inherently strong you know, there's something about I've learned to really appreciate that this idea of strength is something that's agile and can shift and Mm. can move. Like I find it, I think one of the greatest things we can do for each other in this life is be moved by each other, be moved by life's experience, by change, be altered by them, be sensitive to them. So here again, the idea is to allow ourselves to is is to actually exquisitely feel all these things and be with things, these feelings, not barricade against them. That's not the way forward. You can't barricade against these things. These things are in you.
0: It's everything. It's because it seems like the practicalities and obviously, and again, not to be comparative, but the but the practicalities of each situation are different. And, the, yeah. and but so much of it is the same, right? So much of it is about existential identity and mm-hmm. what matters. And then mm-hmm choosing, choosing a way forward.
1: Yeah. And I want to say something about that. Can I take another tangent? I'm just pinging all over the place, Elise. Please. We, We talked a little bit about how the realization that so much, so, so much of the stuff where we spend all our time does, does doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's so true. And weeding out, getting clear about our needs versus our wants. Yes, yes, yes. But one of the great things about once you get clear on your needs and wants, we still get to be neurotic, neurotic, idiosyncratic, weirdos. I mean, life seems to demand that. I mean, if I'm not feeling weird, I know I'm not in touch with life. I mean, life is weird. So we get to have our personality quirks. We get to have our, but just don't, don't. So in other words, we get to have our illusions, our wants. I have my, we can have our fetishes. We can have all sorts of things. Just don't make the mistake of calling that a need. Don't pretend that you need that to be a valuable human being to participate in life. So in other words, let's, yes, let ourselves get stripped down now and again, only to, like, if you want to re-adorn yourself with all sorts of applique and tchotchkes and distractions, go for it. Just call them tchotchkes and distractions. That's my only point.
0: Yeah. I think the other point worth making too is that you talked about palliative care as an antidote to suffering, which I think is really important. But we also tend to conflate culturally, suffering and struggling and struggling is important. Life is, of course, it's hard. It's wonderful, beautiful, mm-hmm. worth it. But struggle is not the same as suffering. And I think sometimes we get a little confused.
1: Right on. Right. A good life is not a life that is absent of struggle. I would That would be a boring life. I mean, there is something, friction. And we don't have to, just, you know, amen struggle is part of the deal, just like fear is part of the deal. All sorts of tricky things are part of the deal. So the, the point here is not to inoculate yourself against pain. Part of the point here is, yeah, let's not suffer unnecessarily. Let's make good choices, but also let's get a lot better with struggling. Let's get more adept at the struggle. Mm-hmm. Let's find even joy in that struggle because that is part of, just part yeah. of the deal. You wish that away and you will have wished your life away.
0: BJ Miller is a model for us all. He is truly one of the most compelling and charismatic and wise people I've encountered over years of interviewing hundreds of people. Um, He's one of those people who I feel like I could talk to every day and still get something interesting um, and new. He spends, obviously, his life contemplating what matters and helping people do the same. And then he lives in that way. It goes back to that Joseph Campbell quote that we talked about. For someone who faces death with people on the hourly, he has so much joy. It's palpable. This not detachment from life necessarily, because he clearly loves a lot of people and cats and what he does with his days, but... He manages to sort of cup it in the palm of his hand rather than cling to it. And it gives him a grace and ease that I wish we could all cultivate. It's something I would love to cultivate in my life. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And as mentioned, he has a a practical guide dealing with life and then also mental health, which is really trying to disrupt this idea that we have about end-of-life care as being either scary or ominous or sanitized in a hospital. Nobody wants to die in a hospital and nobody wants to suffer in a hospital. Hospitals are for acute care. They're not about they're not for healing in that way. And it's really interesting to me that people who are reaching out to mental health are not necessarily confronting health issues but are confronting other existential transitional issues. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week.